again, Isaiah chapter 64, Isaiah chapter 64. We are in the third uh, message in this series, Open the Heavens. And I pray that you have uh, enjoyed it. I pray it's been beneficial to you. Um, really just discussing and, and talking about the uh, importance of waiting on God, the importance of desiring God, the importance of recognizing the position of God, that he is wherever we are, no matter how high we may be or how high and lofty and lifted up we may be, where is God? He's above that, right? No matter how big of a mountain that may be in our way, where is God? He is above that mountain, right? No matter how low the valley may be, where is God? He is in that valley with us as well. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. He is always there. And uh, so this morning, we are going to be looking at the first two weeks we've been looking at um, in, this, in this passage, we've been looking at how Isaiah prays for revival. Isaiah is a prophet of the people there in Israel at a time when the people of Israel had turned their back on God. They had gone and sought after other gods, little g-gods. They had gone and sought after their own way. Many times the Bible, when you read in the book of First and Second Chronicles, around these times you would see that rulers and leaders and everyone would, and this is the phrase, they would do what was right in their own eyes. Now, I don't know about you, but when it comes to God, we are all farsighted, right? We are all farsighted when it comes to God. We will not with our own eyes look at God. We have to be, we have to fix our eyes upon him, but in our own way, sometimes we many times will not fix our eyes on God just out of our own fleshly, our own fleshly uh, capacity. We must look to him and we must fix our eyes on him and remind ourselves of that every single day. This is the kind of, this is the kind of, time that Isaiah was living in. They had chased after other gods. They had seen the result of that, and it's never good. I don't know about you, but when you take your eyes off of God, how, how, how good does it go? How good does it go when we take our eyes off God? It doesn't go very well, right? And God, <clears throat> I don't want to say that to make it sound like, okay, just fix your eyes on God, and he's going to make your life better, and he's going to just make your life, everything's going to go well. I don't want to say it because to, to make it sound like if I follow God, everything's going to go exactly as I plan. No, when you follow God, it's going to go exactly as God plans. And sometimes God's plans don't line up with our plans. But the best for us is to always line up with the plans that he has for us. So this morning, we started out two weeks ago seeing the first thing that Isaiah does is he prays for revival, is he invites God's presence. He invites God's presence. We have to invite God in. God doesn't force himself on us. Sometimes when we step away from him, the consequences force themselves on us. But God will not force himself on us. He leaves, he presents to us the offering of salvation, but he leaves it to us to say that if anyone would believe, they may have eternal life in Christ. Does he pursue us with his grace? Yes. Does he call to us with his love? Yes. But ultimately, it comes down to us, will we be willing to receive him and trust in him only? So there's that desperate plea for invitation. He begs God to look down on his people, to send his presence down on his people, and to shake down or shake up everyone else in his presence. We learn that it's important to give God an open invitation and a free reign to do what he needs to do, not just in those people who need Jesus, but in us as well, right? A lot of times we look for revival to fall and we say, oh yeah, revival needs to fall on this place, man. It's never us that needs revival first, it's everybody else. Oh, but my friend, it's always us. It's always us. Not, none of us have reached a level where we can say, you know what, I've got just about all of God that I can ever possibly get. 
The invitation is really an uncomfortable invitation, isn't it? Because when God shows up, things get a little uncomfortable. Last week, we looked at how Isaiah's expectation in verses three through five, and we saw that Isaiah was so desperate for a move of God because he has tasted and he has seen just how great and mighty and holy that God is. Isaiah knows that God is able to do anything he wants to do, and his expectation of God was based upon a faith that would continue to work, that God would continue to work and is able to do so and will not give up on his people. Isaiah is wondering in the back of his mind, God, have we gone too far? Have we strayed too far? Have we done too much, too far, too long? Are you done with us? But God's expectation of faith, but Isaiah's expectation of faith is that my God is a God who never gives up. My God is one who, if we would just call upon him, he would do mighty things. Makes me think about what the apostle Paul said about God's ability and his power in the New Testament. In Ephesians chapter 3, he says this, Paul says, now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory where? To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Church, God wants to send his glory. God wants the church to be a place where we come and we experience a power and a presence of God that can't be replicated anywhere else. He wants that. We have to trust him, to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think. See, faithful expectation of God's glory wasn't just a struggle in Isaiah's day. It's a struggle for us today too, isn't it? It's hard for us to sometimes when the mountains seem big or they may seem to be caving in around us or it seems like there are forces at work that are beyond our strength or our ability to comprehend. It's hard for us to go to a God that we've never seen. That's why we open this morning by looking at Hebrews when it says if you can't see God, but you can see Jesus. He walks with you. He talks with you. He's with you every single day. And not only that, but if you're a child of God, God has placed his Holy Spirit with inside of you. We are never alone. We are never far from God's glory because his glory resides in us. We have a wonderful presence of God that Isaiah didn't even have at that time. He said, God, just send down your presence, rip the heavens. We want to see times when that happens, but what it takes is a prepared heart. And that's what we look at this morning. We move past the invitation for God. We move past the expectation that he will show up after the invitation is made. And then the next step is the preparation. So let's look at our text this morning, if you would, with me. We're going to read for sake, of, for sake of just clarity and understanding it all. Let's look at verses 1 through 9 today. Isaiah says this, If only you would tear the heavens open and come down so that the mountains would quake at your presence. Just as fire kindles brushwood and fire boils water to make your name wholly known to your enemies. So that the nations will tremble at your presence. When you did awesome works that we did not expect, you who came down in the mountains quaked at your presence from ancient times. No one has heard, no one has listened to, no eye has seen any God except you who acts on the behalf of the one who waits for him. You welcome the one who joyfully does what is right. They remember you in your ways, but we have sinned and you were angry. How can we be saved if we remain in our sins? That's a rhetorical question to which the answer is we can't. We can't be saved if we look to remain in our sins. And then in verse 6, here's where we see the preparation come in. All of us have become like something unclean and all our righteous acts are like a polluted garment or like filthy rags. All of us wither like a leaf and our iniquities carry us away like the wind. No one calls on your name striving to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us. You have made us melt because of your iniquity. Yet, Lord... 
<laughs> I love that. Yet, Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay and you are the potter. We are all the work of your hands. Lord, do not be terribly angry but, or remember the iniquity forever. Please look. All of us are your people. Lord God, I pray that you would captivate us this morning and I pray for the next few moments as we look into your word and are fed by it today. Help us to receive what you have to say to us today. Help us to understand you and Holy Spirit give us understanding and make us moldable in your hands just like this clay in the potter. In Jesus' precious name we pray. The church says, amen. Oh, that you would come down and that you would rend the heavens, that you would make the mountains quake at your presence. We see all of these powerful and lofty requests. We see this great invitation that Isaiah has made. We see that he remembers just how good God is and he has this expectation that God can work again and that he can do amazing things. He can turn a stiff-necked people back to him. And folks, I want to tell you this. If he can turn a stiff-necked group of people in the Israeli desert back to him, he can turn a group of stiff-necked Americans back to him as well. All right? He can turn any stiff-necked people to him, but we have to invite him in. We have to expect him to work. And the third thing we need to do, and that's what we're looking at this morning, is we need to prepare for his arrival. God's not going to just, you know, show up and everything's going to be wonderful if we don't prepare and we don't work towards that. Let me ask you this morning, how many of you uh, like to plan a party? You like to plan a party. Holidays are coming up, right? And so, you know, you got Thanksgiving and Christmas. How many of you are going to be hosting Thanksgiving or Christmas at your place this year? Okay, a couple of you. How many of you are going to be going to Thanksgiving or Christmas at somebody else's house? Okay, so, so we've got some people that are on the party planning committee, right? You're the host. You're the hostess with the mostest, and you got all that stuff going on. Most of us in here, it looks like we're the ones that are like, if it weren't for the party planning committee, our lives would be boring, right? We just show up and eat the food and open the gifts, right? But we oftentimes don't take into consideration just how much goes into it. Matter of fact, this is why a lot of people don't want to host anymore. Because of the preparation that goes into it, right? Right? Think about this. When you're getting ready to host a family event or you're getting ready to host a dinner party or something, what's the, what's the steps to it? What do you do? First of all, you got to invite people over, right? You got to let them know. You either send uh, an invitation or you call people up or you text them or you, you make an evite or you send it out on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or TikTok or Snapchat or wherever else it is that you communicate with people. There's a million and one of them, right? You let people know about it. Now, how many of you, when you're inviting people over, you just say, all right, everybody's going to come. And they start, they start RSVPing, and they're going to be there on that date. Now, that's when the real work starts, right? How many of you, if you said, hey, I'm going to have a dinner party, everybody, all you need to do is your pretty beautiful selves, and I got everything else. Now, what would happen if you show up at a house party or at a, at a dinner party one night? House parties are a little different. And you show up at a dinner party one night, and you walk up, and the porch lights are off. Everything is dark. There's no lights on. It looks like nobody is home. You see some flickering lights that are like kind of coming through the window of the door a little bit, but you can tell it's just a TV. Now, when you show up to a dinner party and it looks like that, what are you thinking? I got the wrong night, right? Right? How many of you, if you were planning that dinner party, would be comfortable with just sitting there, letting them come in, and you're, you got your face stuffed in a bowl full of ramen noodles, Netflix binging, and watch it. You didn't make any preparation, right? Your guests walk in, and they say, oh, everything looks so lived in, right? That's not the compliment you want when company comes over, right? Why? Because when you invite people over and people fulfill that invitation and you're expecting them to come, what's the next step? You have to prepare for them to come. 
right? We have to prepare for them to come. This is Isaiah's progression through this prayer. He's invited to come. Lord, rend the heavens. Come down among us. He expects him to come. He remembers when he's shown up in the past. Now he says we need to get to a place of preparation, of preparing our hearts for that, right? We all know what goes wrong when we show up for a party that hasn't been prepared for. After you invite and after you expect people to show up, you prepare for when they do. Something as good and as vital as an arrival of the move of God, while we can't manufacture it, we can't schedule it, we can't set the agenda for it, it still requires preparation for it. We can't tell God what to do, okay? Don't get me wrong. Well, I'm not trying to preach about here's this formula for how revival will happen. This isn't, this isn't revival in a box kit in four easy weeks. What I'm telling you is it's about the condition of our heart. We have to invite God in. We have to be ready for his presence and openly yield to what he wants to do. We have to expect that he can because God works and he responds to our faith. But we also need to prepare our hearts because God moves and he uses and he fills clean vessels for his use. Isaiah notes three stages of preparation here in our text that have to be noticed for us to prepare our hearts for revival. The first thing that we have to do if we're going to prepare for God's arrival is we must get real. If we're going to prepare for God to move, we must get real. And that's in verse number six. But let me ask you this. How many of you ever been in a position where you've had a lot of people coming over and you know what you have to do to make sure the house looks right? Right? You, you have to make sure the house looks good because, like I said, you don't want people coming in and saying, oh, the place just looks so lived in. Right? You, that's not a compliment, right? Oh, this is nice. This pile of dishes over here in the dining room is really nice. That's, that's, that's good. Nobody wants that, right? I believe there's a couple of ways that people prepare for when company is coming over. There's the people that are the total preppers. Right? The total preppers are the ones who tear the house up, right? And then put it back together again. They declutter, they dust, they like, they do everything, right? They may go buy new drapes. They may, they may go buy new, new, new throw pillows because 1,000 is not enough. 1,001, that's going to make the place pop. That's how many throw pillows we need, right? There's the total preppers, right? They organize every nook and cranny so that when people walk in, they're blown away. You live in Better Homes and Gardens catalog every day. Wow, what it must be like to live like you. Martha Stewart, eat your heart out. Then, those are the total preppers. Then there's the surface preppers. This is my kind of people right here. The ones who maybe kick all the clothes and the shoes under the bed or stuff everything in a closet and pray to God that nobody dares open that door. You might even think of putting a biohazard sticker on it or something like that. No one, you just pray that nobody sees the hidden areas. And when company comes over, you say, look, for your protection, if a door is closed, for the love of God, don't open it. <laughs> right? That's the surface preppers. And guess what? I've seen that surface prepping, you still have a good time when everybody's over. Right? As long as everybody obeys the rules for their safety. See, when it comes to how we prepare for a move of God, we have to get real. See, there's a part of that surface prepping that there's, there's a little bit of deceit and there's a little bit of, you know, uh, trying to cover up a little bit. It's all smoke and mirrors, right? It's going to fall apart at any time. See, we have to get real about our very, our true nature. The first thing we have to get real about is our true nature. See, in our text, Isaiah declares, all of us have become like something unclean and all of our righteous acts are like a polluted garment or your text may, see, may say like, filthy rags or dirty rags. So what's this telling us? It's telling us that all of us are sinful in the eyes of God, right? 
Every last one of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I believe I read that in a book called Romans. You may have remembered that, right? All of us are sinful because all of us sin. Not one of us is perfect. Not one of us can say, well, I have a sin nature, but I don't ever like engage in that nature. No, we do. We're sinners because we sin. It's our nature and we are unclean in that nature. And what that means is even our very best in our sin is not good enough. Even our very best in our sin is trash in the eyes of God. Left to ourselves, we, lie, we live in this perpetual state of uncleanness. Why? Because we have to get real about our true nature. We have all sinned and we fall short of God's glory. This is why when companies come in over, we often think, what do I need to clean? Because we've come to accept a certain level of uncleanliness when it's just us and the family, but we don't dare let anyone else see that. I'm bad for this, man. When I know somebody's coming over, I don't care who it is. If I know somebody's coming over, I'm like, is the, is the sink empty? Are the dishes washed? Are the floor swept? I'm, I'm, I'm scrambling if somebody says they're coming over. Why? Because I don't want somebody to think that my norm is unacceptable, right? But here's the thing that we have to understand when we're considering God is that you can't hide that stuff from him. He sees us at all times. He's the unnoticed guest at every meal. He's the unnoticed resident at every house. He's there. We can't hide our true nature from God. And let's say you're the surface prepper. God's the guest that invades every space. He opens every door. He goes into every room. He peeks under every bed. He knows you better than you know yourself. So if we're going to expect and prepare for God, we need to get right and get real with ourselves about our true nature is I'm unclean. Just like Isaiah said in Isaiah 6, I'm lost and I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. The more we get real about our sin and our nature, the more beautiful and miraculous the gospel becomes. This is why when you're a child of God, the, the Holy Spirit continues to convict us of sin and to tell us to deal with our sin. Now we have an option when that happens. We can try to cover it up or we can try to deal with it. Or we can try to justify it away. That's part of the cover up as well. Adam and Eve did it. Cain did it. Everybody's tried to cover up their sins before. We see it happening every single day in our culture. We see it happening every single day with our kids. We do it ourselves. Our first flesh response, my truest nature is I'm going to cover up my sin. But here's the thing about God. God specializes in uncovering our sin. The best and most loving thing the Father can do is bring us to a place where our sin is exposed and we don't have an excuse for it. That we repent and that we get forgiveness. We have to get real about our true nature and we have to get real about what we truly have to offer as well. He says, even our works, even our works of righteousness are like filthy rags or they're like an unclean garment, right? There's a lot of people who think today, well, if I do all the right things, it'll, it'll off balance all the wrong things that I do. At the end of the day, when I talk to many people and I ask them, you know, do you think you'll go to heaven? Well, yeah, because I think my good outweighs my bad, like God's going to place those things on scales of justice and my good outweighs my bad and I think I'll be okay. The problem is, the Bible says that there is no one righteous in the eyes of God because one drop of sin cancels out all the righteousness that we can do because even our righteousness in our sin is tainted. But here, there is one drop of something that cancels everything else out and that's the blood of Jesus Christ. One drop of the blood of Jesus Christ covers all of that sin. 
We have to understand that we don't bring anything to the table in forgiveness. Only Jesus brings it. We bring ourselves and we say, Lord, baptize me in your goodness. Lord, save me. Lord, plunge me beneath the cleansing flood of your blood and grace because I'm a sinner and I'm lost and undone. We don't bring anything to the table. There are a lot of people who gauge their spirituality on all the spiritual things they're doing, right? What positions they hold in church, what kind of degrees they hold, or the books they're reading, or theological concepts they're mastering, how many services they attend, all these things. And we're good at making those like ladders of faith success sometimes. But sometimes we get more invested into the what and the how much of our service than we do in the who of our service. Because what God is caring about is who we are serving. Our service should be re- 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 go around that. See, a pastor once said on Twitter, I saw this and I thought it was amazing. He says, make sure your identity comes from who you are in Christ, not from what you're doing in service to him. Make sure your identity comes from who you are in Christ, not what you're doing in service to him. Many times, and I have to be transparent on this, when people say, uh, you know, Derek, describe yourself. I say, well, I'm a pastor. Now, for a lot of people, what you'll do, you'll describe the career you've got or whatever like that. But when I describe that, I'm also describing a calling on my life. But I have to look at who I am in Christ as being the most valuable thing over what I do for Christ. See, because I, didn't get, I don't get to do anything for Christ before I'm someone in Christ. So get real about what you bring. It says all our righteous acts are like this polluted garment. And then lastly, we have to understand that we have to get real about the way things really are. Get real about, about our sin. Get real about our nature. Get real about what we bring to the table and get real about the way things really are. We just can't sugarcoat the situation or expect God to gloss over what's really the problem. And this is what many people try to do today. We justify our sin. We say, well, God doesn't really care about that much anymore. Or I know I've got this problem, but I'm going to go over here and I'm going to do all these other good things. And it's just going to like cover up the stench of the sin over here. But a few years ago, this German tourist went on, was going on this tour of America. And he flew in from Germany. His first night in the United States, he landed for some reason in Miami. And he was really tired. He didn't want to pick up his connecting flight. It wasn't until the morning. He didn't want to spend the night in the airport. So he checked into the airport there at the, at the at, or he checked into the, the motel there at the airport. And he was dog tired. I mean, he was dead tired. So he's like, he comes into his room and he notices there's just kind of this funky smell in the room. And it's like, man, it's kind of gross, but I don't, I don't, all I'm going to do is fall asleep. So he just, I mean, he doesn't even change nothing. He just falls face down on the bed and he sleeps and he wakes up in the morning. And you know, kind of like as you start waking up, your senses start coming back to you a little bit, right? He just about vomited the minute his sense of smell kind of returned to his waking consciousness. And he's like, man, the smell has gotten so much worse. But he looked at his watch and he realized that he was almost late for his flight to get to his gate. So he, you know, he just, you know, freshened up as fast as he could and he got out and he ran out. And on the way out, he told the housekeeper that was in the hallway, he says, hey, there is a foul smell in my room. You may want to do something about that before you put anybody else in there. The next day, there was a report that hit the Miami Herald that there was a hotel at the airport that discovered a dead body that had been rotting underneath a guest's bed for about two weeks. It was that guy's room. 
You see, what was the problem? He knew something was wrong the minute he walked in, but what was, what, how did he decide to deal with it? He didn't deal with the problem. He just said, I've got other things that are more pressing for me. My sleep is more important. And then when it hit him even harder, he said, you know what? I just got to get out and I'm going to go. He didn't deal with the problem. This is what many of us do with our sins. And the Bible tells us our sins, even our righteousness in our sin is like a filthy rag. It's repugnant. But what do we do? We try to sugarcoat it. We pull out the Febreze or we do something to try to make it feel better, right? I got this sin that I'm dealing with in my life and I really don't want to, I really don't want to confess it. I don't want to repent. I don't want people to pray for me about it. So what do we do? We try to sugarcoat it. We try to put on a smile when we go to church. We try to do a little extra. Maybe we give a little extra in the offering plate. Try to sugarcoat all of that. But until we get real about the way things really are, real revival can't take place. And I think this is where we're at in so many of our churches today because we've all got our pet sins that we're just holding on to. We're like, nobody knows about them and I really haven't seen any consequences for it yet. The stench hasn't gotten that bad so I can continue to do what I need to do. But folks, eventually it's gonna get to the place where it wretches your soul and you're not gonna know where to turn. So we have to get real. We have to get real. The second thing that we have to do as we move, as we move on this morning is we have to get right. We have to get right when it comes to our sins because the effect of sin, it deteriorates us and it withers us and it carries us off, right? That's what sin does to us. Verse number six of our text says, all of us are like a leaf. We wither like a leaf and our iniquities carry us away like the wind. So we need to get right with God. The reason we have to get right with God is because our sin will stifle revival. Our sin will stifle our revival. Our sin will wither us will deteriorate us and it will carry us off into other passions. Look at verse number seven. It says, no one calls on your name, striving to take hold of you for you have hidden your face from us and made us melt because of our iniquity. See, last week we saw Isaiah reminisce over the awesome works that God had done, but what had changed from when God had done amazing works? People had stopped calling on God. People had stopped inviting God. It says, no one looks to God anymore. No one seems to pay attention to him anymore. No one strives to take hold of you anymore. It's telling us that our sin and our rebellion, our turning our backs on God is the reason sometimes that we don't see revival. If we don't want God to show up, then why should he? Sometimes I wonder if God showed up, just how comfortable we'd be with it. Right? Because we've traded a lot of things for the power of God. Great marketing, good process. We've got it today where we've gone through a couple of decades where church leaders have studied more about leadership principles from business and from other places and tried to bring those things into the church than they have studied God and the power of God and what he can do. Sin will stifle our revival. See, that phrase there, he says he's hidden his face from us. That's not God actively like, you know, turning his back on us. It's that he is no longer like trying to get the attention anymore. He's like, if you don't want me, that's fine. I'm right here on my throne when you want me, when you need me. I'll be here when you need me. And trust me, you need me. But when you realize you need me, that's where I'll be. And what it says, it says it made us melt because of our iniquity. It wasn't because of God. God didn't make us melt. Did you notice this? What made us melt? Our iniquity. Our iniquity makes us melt. 
God doesn't. So a lot of people have this view of God that he's this, he's this big, you know, like rule keeper in the sky that's ready to just bash us over the head the minute we mess up. No, that's not, that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is one who loves us so much that he gave us a pathway to navigate in his word. And when we step away from it, yes, consequences come, but it's the, con- the natural consequences of sin. The wages of sin is what, church? Is death. The wages of sin is not God's anger. The wages of sin is death. God's jealousy is about him wanting the best for us. And God is holy and he can't be a party to sin. And that means when we're in sin, he can't be at the party. So his face is hidden from us. And what happens? We end up melting when we are hidden in our iniquities. See, sometimes the most merciful thing that God can do is not show up right away. Because when God does show up, he has to judge sin. So sometimes when we say, God, why don't you show up? And he's not showing up. It might be his mercy saying, you need to get right before I do. Because when I judge sin, it's not going to be pretty. The mercy is seen in not meeting out justice the moment that we stray. See, we have to humble ourselves to call on God as well. We have to get right. And getting right is about getting humble. Understanding the way things really are that I'm a sinner. is something that happens when we deal with our sin. We realize I ain't as good as I thought I was. We also come to understand no one's really as bad as we think sometimes because we hold people up to our false sense of righteousness, don't we? And man, everybody looks bad. We, we hold ourselves up to like this different kind of standard than we do everybody else a lot of times. And everybody's going to look bad to a perfect standard. But we don't hold ourselves to that a lot. We give ourselves a lot more grace. But humble comes from emptying ourselves of self so God can work. Think about it this way. If I've got a bucket up here, you know, one of those big five-gallon paint buckets up here, and it's full of like rusty screws and nails and stuff, and it's full to about like, you know, three-quarters of the way. First of all, it's really heavy, right? But second of all, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a third, third of the way full. Let's say you're really needing a bucket, and you've got to like move some water, or you've got to move some sand or something like that, and you're needing to, you know, you're needing a full bucket, right? What are you going to have to do in order to use my bucket? You're going to have to empty it out, right? I'll say, sure, you can use my bucket. Go right ahead. But before that bucket can be useful to you, you got to empty everything out, right? But what if I told you, yes, you can use my bucket for whatever you need, but the, here's the kicker. The stuff I've got in my bucket is really precious to me, so I don't want you to get rid of it. You can use my bucket, but you can only use the portion of the bucket that's not full. Do you still want my bucket? I mean, it might be okay, but it's still not going to be as good as it could be the use of that bucket to you is going to be diminished by the fact that what I've got in my bucket is filling it up. This is what happens in revival. God says, okay, you want me to come down? You want me to fill you with your presence? Let's get you out of the way. Before I can use you, I got to empty you of you. Because a lot of us, we are sinners. All of us, we're sinners. We just saw that, right? So I've got to empty you of you. See, that, that, that attitude of, I don't need to see God, and I, I, don't need to, I don't need to hold on to him. And what do we do when God begins to work, and when God begins to reveal sin in our lives? We begin to get, God, I didn't expect you to go there. No, you can use me, but leave that piece alone. And God says, give me the whole bucket, and I'll do amazing things. But we don't want to let go of those pieces, do we? I think, I think it's interesting in verse number 7, where it says, no one calls on your name, striving to take hold of you. You know what keeps us from taking hold of God sometimes? 
holding on to everything else. If you just let go, you can take hold of God. My man is getting it down here. He's like, preach, brother. Bring it. Thank you. Here's what we do. We approach revival and we say, here we are, God. Send revival. Fill me with your presence. Fill my bucket. And God's like, okay, let's, let's do that. Let's empty that bucket so I can fill it with me. And we're like, but why can't you just be the icing on top of the bucket that looks pretty good? Because he says your works of righteousness without me are like filthy rags. They're not as good as you think they are. It's so much better if you're completely filled with me and emptied of yourself. That's why he says no one was calling on God. No one was taking hold of him because Israel had gotten to a place and it happened so many times. God would bless and they would receive those blessings and then they would take those blessings and think that made them something and they didn't need God anymore. Sound familiar? So we must get right. And we have to understand that repentance and revival go hand in hand. If revival can only fall on the humble, then the question is, how do I humble myself? I have to repent of my sins. I have to repent. And repentance is not just saying, yeah, I'm a sinner. I admit. No, that's, that's affirmation. That's confession. Repentance is another step. Is after I've confessed my sin, I'm going to turn from my sin and turn towards Christ. You see, confession of sin says, yeah, I got this bucket that's full of some stuff. But Lord, if you'd use me, I'd like to keep that stuff in the bucket. I'm not proud of it, but why do you have to deal with it? No, repentance is, yeah, I got some stuff in this bucket, Lord. You've seen it, you know me, and I'm asking you to empty it out into the sea of forgetfulness and into the sea of forgiveness where it is buried forever, and I want to walk in you. And you know what? Every single time we ask him to do that, he does it without fail. God is good. We have to understand, though, that our repentance and revival go hand in hand. God falls on a people that are repentant. This is what Isaiah was doing. He's like, we're a people that don't seek you. We're a people that don't grab hold of you anymore. You've hidden your face for good reason. And it's not your fault. It's not your fault that you're not moving right now. It's because of us. It's because of our iniquity and we are melting because of it. <laughs> but that's not it. Third thing, we must get ready. After getting right, we must get ready. Here's what he says. I love this. In verse number eight, he says, yet Lord, <laughs> yet Lord, you are our father. You know why that line is so important right there? in the middle of all of that is because a father doesn't give up on his kids. No matter what his kids do, a loving father doesn't give up on his kids. More adequately, we need to get ready for God's work and willing for God to work. And this is easier said than done, right? When we say, God, I want you to move in my life. I want you to empty the bucket and I want you to fill me with yourself. I want you to mold me and make me what you want me to be. We have to let him do it. And sometimes his picture, his, his, his plan is not the plan that we have in our hand thinking about it. See, wouldn't following God be easier if he was the one that was doing the following? Right? If he'd let us lead sometimes. If he just answered every prayer that we prayed, whether it fit his plan or not. See, that's the kind of God a lot of people want today. And this is why so many people are walking away left and right because they've conjured up in themselves a God who just does everything we think is good. 
But that's not our God. Our God does what is right. And we have to understand that our concept of goodness is tainted by our sin. Even as children of God, our concept of goodness is still tainted by that nature of sin. So there are some things that we think are good and right that are not good and righteous. We have to get ready for God's work. If he just easily fit into a little box of what we want him to be at the moment, man. This thought, press by the, this thought process, by the way, is the thought process that leads directly to idolatry. Thinking that God is only good when he does the things that I think are good. That's what leads to idolatry. Because once God doesn't do that, and once God breaks the mold, we go and seek for a God, a little G God, that we can mold to ourselves. You ever notice all the other little Gs, the statues and the icons, and all, they're all created by who? By us. So we fashion them the way we want them to be. Only God says, you can't fashion me. I don't live in your little boxes. I created you. See, we have to get ready for God to do what only he can do. Never in scripture do we find man molding God to himself. Only in scripture do we find God molding man to his image. Isaiah notes that he and the remnant of followers are ready and willing for God to do whatever he sees necessary in order for his glory to be seen. And here's what he says in verse number eight. Yet, Lord, you are our father. That intimate relationship that he knows us inside and out, right? And that he loves us. And that's important before we get into the next description. Now he changes metaphors and he goes into this. We are the clay and you are our potter. Isaiah compares God's children to the clay in the hand of a master potter. But you see, not all clay, if you know much about pottery, not all clay is created equal. Okay? What I mean by that is, oh, all clay is usually made of the same components. You know, it's dust and dirt and water mixed together and things. But depending on how much water you have applied to the dirt, it's either more flexible or less flexible. There's more dry clay than there is, than there is um, flexible clay. So what happens is as the clay master sits down and he begins to spin that wheel, he takes a lump of clay and he plops it down on that spinning wheel. And it's not working in his hand as much as he likes it to do. What does he do? He grabs some water and he splashes it on there. I think this is beautiful illustration of what we need in our lives because a lot of times sin will dry us out, but Jesus is the living water that makes us moldable in the king's hand. Isn't that beautiful? This is why Isaiah, before Jesus even came, before Jesus even came and told the people that he was the living water, we're already seeing these elements put together in the Old Testament. But he says, we are the clay and you are the potter. And as God begins to mold us, the more we have of him, the more flexible and the more moldable we become in his hand. But then there's something that the potter must do with the clay as he's putting it together. He's, he has to press on it and he has to pound on it and he has to knead it because there's air pockets in that clay. And he has to get all of those air pockets out because if they go into the kiln with all those air pockets, see, heat causes things to expand. And so that beautiful mug that you've made, if it's got air pockets in that clay, you put it in the kiln, it'll explode in there with all that air. And so Jesus, and so God begins as the potter, he begins to mold us and he begins to press on us to move all of that air, all of that stuff that will dry us out spiritually. He begins to move all of that out. And what do we usually do as the clay? We kick and we scream against it, don't we? Because it's not fun. God, I don't like it when you convict me of sin. I don't like it when you start pressing in on the things that I like and the comfort level and ask me to come out of my comfort zone. I don't like when you do that. 
But yet the potter continues to work. We are the clay. He is the potter. He continues to mold and to make. So we have to get ready for him to move and for his will. Why? Because the potter has the image in his mind. Get ready for God's move. We get ready for his hand. It says this. Look what he says again in verse number eight. After he says, you're the clay, or we're the clay and you're the potter, he says, we are all the work of your hands. We are all the work of your hands. Church, get this. You're not an accident. You're not a fail. You're, you're not what everybody would like to tell you. You're not just this mess that you've got to work to make everything good. No, you are a masterpiece handcrafted by the designer. And God is still working on you and he's still molding you and he's still making you and he won't be done with you until you draw your final breath. And guess what? When you draw your final breath, you go to his trophy case in the sky where you'll praise him for all of eternity. Get ready for his hand. The hand of God in scripture always implies his guidance, his direction, his vision, and his sovereign will. And here Isaiah says, we're the work of your guidance. We're the work of your will. We're the work of your hand and your vision. God always has a plan and a direction for his work. And while you're sitting there thinking, yeah, right, he hasn't filled me in on it yet. Yeah. Do you think the potter sits down to the clay a lot of times says to this lump of clay, okay, now I'm making you a mug right now. You see, I'm, I'm dipping it in, I'm beginning to mold you right there. He doesn't do that because he's the potter. He has the design, right? And here's the thing about the clay. The clay never questions what the master potter is making them to become. The job of the clay is to let the potter work. And as we move to our invitation this morning, this is the question I have for us today. As the clay, how moldable have we been in the hand of the potter? See, the clay on the spinning wheel never resists the potter's hand. It never resists the potter's hand. It's just clay. It's just there. It lets the potter work. It doesn't shout out, I don't want to be a bowl. I want to be a mug. It doesn't shout that out. It doesn't seek to sneak in additives to the mixture thinking that it will enhance or help the potter's work. But what do we do with God, the potter? God, you're pressing too much air out. I just, I just don't, I know, I know it's good for me, but I don't like it. And what do we do? God, I don't want to be what you're making me. I want to be this over here. And we eventually try to jump off the wheel. And other times we think, God, that's fine, but man, I'd be so much better if I had your hand and, and, and we brought in this other guy to maybe like make me look good too. We have additives. We try to add to Jesus. You can't get better than the master potter. See, the clay is what it is. The clay is the medium that the artist is using. No one stands back at a mug. Think about the mugs that you have in your house. Do you ever sit there? What, what, think about your favorite mug in your house. Why is it your favorite? Maybe it says something goofy on it or something. Maybe your kids made it. Anybody have, a, a, have like a piece of pottery that your kids made at school? Okay, a couple of you do. All right. Why is that thing so special? It's because of who made it. Nobody takes a mug out where they got it at Starbucks or got it somewhere and say, man, that is some good clay. That is amazing clay. No, what do they say? Most of the time we don't think about it, but man, that's a pretty mug. That's beautiful. Because it's the workmanship, not the material. It's the workmanship that makes the material special. It's the workmanship that gives the glory to the material. And church, that's us. We're the material. We're the clay. 
and he's the potter. And when the potter gets the glory, that's when it's beautiful. So as I close out this morning, I just want to ask you this. Ask yourself this as we bow our heads and we close our eyes today. What kind of clay am I? Am I clay? Am I moldable? Or am I just still in that, that dirt phase, needing the living water to be infused? If I need Jesus Christ, am I moldable? Am I being refined right now? Do I feel the pressure of God working out those, those patches, those bubbles that just need to be removed so God can use me? Do I feel the heat of the kiln? Maybe right now you're in the kiln, you're being shaped and you're being made and you're being hardened and you're being, you're being strengthened for use. Or maybe you might say, I'm just dry and I'm in need of touch of the living water. See, there's any number of situations in here today. What are you? Whatever you are today, the best thing that you need to do is to yield to the Lord and to let the potter do his work. Because what we like to do is the clay. We like to fight against it every step of the way. God is putting us through a time of refining right now with the financial troubles we're going through and the future that seems to be unclear right now. And he's wanting to know, will we trust him? And when he speaks, and even if it's not something that we want, will we still trust him? So maybe we need to spend time with God right now asking, Lord, just be clear and mold us and make us as you want. You're the potter, we're the clay. Father, have your will and way in this invitation. Do as you see fit. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen. Would you stand today? I know the message.